Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL, available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson. We've all gotten used to hearing it as part of our political and public discourse. We hear it so often that it sort of blends into the background. Millionaires, billionaires, four and a half trillion dollars in COVID relief, 28 trillion in national debt. I've joked before on this show that after a while, the numbers you hear out of Washington begin to sound like that famous Austin Powers movie routine, like a kajillionty dollars. And no, that's not a real number. But in a very real way, none of this is funny. The fact that all of the numbers blend together and that we lose all sense of scale actually matters. This is a democracy. And at the end of the day, the fact that we can't conceive of what these numbers really mean erodes our ability as citizens to govern. There's a saying in Washington that a billion dollars here, a billion dollars there, pretty soon you're talking about real money. It's revealing that to the people we've put in charge, they can't even treat real numbers as real until they get high enough. Just think for a second about Bernie Sanders references to millionaires and billionaires. Are those actually people who should be put together in the same category? Considering that 1 billion is a thousand times bigger than 1 million, it's not clear that we should have the same policies for both sets of people. I'm not the only person to raise this issue. In fact, Cornell University mathematics professor Stephen Strogatz and his students, Ayana Green, wrote a fantastic op-ed in the New York Times a few weeks ago about this exact problem and how to maybe think about it a little differently. So I'm very happy to welcome Ayana Green to the program. Welcome. Thank you so much, Matt, for having me. I'm really excited to join. I'm a policy analysis and management major at Cornell going into my senior year. Uh, but this past semester, I took an applied mathematics class with Professor Strogatz, and um, it really just built into the article that we were ultimately able to publish this past June in the New York Times. Well, that is fantastic. And I'm really excited to get your perspective, not only on the contents of the article, but also kind of the process that drew you into thinking about this problem. So what did get you going on worrying about this issue that we don't have very good ways as human beings to conceive of big numbers and big differences in scale? I think my interest in the specific problem of helping individuals understand the US federal budget and debt really goes back to my major as well as my leadership position in policy analysis and management. So ever since my freshman spring at Cornell, I have been a teaching assistant in the introduction to policy analysis class in which TAs have the opportunity to teach weekly discussion sections independently, and it's net new content for the students. So it's content that's not taught in the lecture section by the professors. So um, while we do prepare in the spring to give our fall sections, it's really up to the TA how they want to get the, in get the information across to their students. One of our sections completely focuses on the US budget and the debt, going over what's in the budget, what the deficit versus the debt is, et cetera. And our current activity is a balance the budget activity from uh, the CRFB. Um, so that helps students kind of understand what their political priorities might be. For example, decreasing the deficit or the debt by this many billion um, if we lowered spending on defense or increasing it for funding free community college. However, once I joined Professor Strogatz's class, we had a class where we went over these large numbers and how individuals, for example, cannot necessarily understand how vast Jeff Bezos's wealth is um, and how that compares to um, 
how little he would have to spend to bring uh, all of the individuals in the US out of poverty compared to his entire wealth. Um, and one of, one of the other examples was Terry Tao's 2009 uh, blog post about uh, this kind of idea in relation to the US budget. So we talked about how rescaling a $100 million item in the budget to a $3 item of a hypothetical family of four could help individuals actually understand how these numbers in the budget uh, compare to the budget overall. Um, so I think that my inspiration for it really came from seeing how this could help my students improve. And it's something we're definitely adding into our curriculum and required readings for next year. Um, and then the fact that Professor Strogatz introduced this idea of rescaling in one of our classes to help you know, students understand the numbers a little bit better. So it sounds like this is a very practical problem that you face. You're both a student yourself and you're also in a teaching position and you have to help other students to understand really big numbers. And it is a challenge. And you write in the in the New York Times op-ed article that, that you authored with Professor Strogatz that the trick is that if you can relate big numbers to something familiar, they start to feel more tangible, almost palpable, you say. And you give an example in the article of how long it would take for a million seconds to tick by. Could, could you tell our listeners, what does that work out to? I mean, just, just to give an example of how to think about some of these big numbers. Yeah, definitely. So when you think about what the difference between a million and a billion seconds is, um, well, you might, I'll give you a minute to guess, but the difference between a million seconds and a billion seconds is, is actually major. So a million seconds is about 12 days. So almost just shy of two weeks and a billion seconds is about 32 years. So a significant fraction of your entire life. And so while the words million and billion may kind of just sound so big that they are sort of close together in our minds, they're actually not. And I think time is a great example of how we already have this built in way to rescale the numbers when we can, um, you know, think about units of time that are already seconds to minutes to uh, days and months and years. Yeah, that's it's a concept that more people are familiar with. And I was thinking in the run up to this discussion that, you know, look, another way to talk about this is we throw around numbers in politics like millions, and then we throw around numbers like trillions. And, you know, it, it's it's hard to remember that a trillion is actually a million millions. I mean, that is a huge, huge difference, but we sort of throw them around interchangeably. The problem with my example versus your example is that my example involves more math. It involves multiplication. And that's still a concept that's a little bit out of reach. So you found that time scaling is one good trick. You point to another good trick that comes right off of the Cornell University campus where you go to school. Um, you point out that in Ithaca, there's a scale model of the solar system known as the Sagan walk. I'm guessing that this is after Carl Sagan, the famous uh, Cornell University astronomy professor and the creator of the Cosmos miniseries on PBS. Look, kids out there, you're probably not old enough to remember Carl Sagan. What made him most famous was not only this fantastic Cosmos miniseries, which still holds up and you absolutely have to watch it, but also he was really famous for repeating billions and billions, which was just his way of trying to get across just how vast a scale he was talking about in the universe 
But to make that more realistic, they created this Sagan walk. So what is that? And how does that give people a better sense of scale? Well, first of all, you're right. That walk is named after one of our famous science alumni, um, who is one of those high up people that we always hear about famous on that Cornell uh, University tour. But that walk is actually located in the Ithaca Commons, which is a wonderful place. There's actually more restaurants per capita at the bottom of the hill where Cornell is located than New York City. Wow. Um, so yeah, so fun fact about fun fact. our little town in of Ithaca. Um, but the Sagan Walk, you're right, is um, basically this model of the solar system that does a similar rescaling strategy to our article. So all the planets and the distances between them are reduced to a factor I think of about 5 billion. And so this applies to their sizes as well as, as I said, the distances so that you can see that the sun becomes the size of a serving plate and Jupiter is a Brussels sprout while the earth is just a small pea. So that gives you an idea of how different, how different the uh, sizes of the planets are when you just see them on a solar system and it's not perfectly rescaled, that may not be so clear. Um, and then there's also the walking, which is actually gives us sort of this physical sense of the rescaling. So the walk from the Earth to Sun takes a few dozen footsteps. And then Pluto is a 15 minute hike all the way across the Ithaca Commons. Got it. And, you know, you also wrote in that article that cognitive scientists have found that students like the students that, that you teach can grasp extremely long time periods. Again, we're talking about numbers that scale into the millions, billions, probably not trillions because we haven't reached that long in the universe yet, but mil uh, millions and billions. People can understand them better if they use a mental trick that, that you allude to in the article. What is that mental trick? Yeah, definitely. So this was actually from a 2017 paper in cognitive science that I researched while we were writing the article. Um, so it's based on the cognitive science of how individuals predict numbers focused on science education and its applications. So it predicts that this activity in which participants map larger scales, such as time, geologic scale of time, or the solar system distances, using analogies on a timeline to their own life. So starting with where do I fit? And then building out from there compared to individuals who just have conventional um, ordering. So told to order this, this time and then this time or this planet and then this planet. So it guesses that the individuals who form this accurate mental number line will be able to understand these distances and these times better and then be, have improved uh, scores on recall of the different ordering of the geologic time scale or distances. Right. So it, it would be kind of like, if I'm following this, right, it would be kind of like, look, if you want to understand, well, I'll take another Carl Sagan example. If you want to understand the 13.8 billion years since the universe was formed in the Big Bang, you could kind of analogize it to a whole calendar year. And the Big Bang would happen on January 1st at 12.01 a.m. or 12 and one second. And all of history up till the present would be on a calendar. And by using that analogy, you can see that human beings have only existed for something like the last two months. 
and uh, you know, the the last century is like the last minute of the calendar. Is that is that kind of the idea? Yeah, that's definitely the idea. And the study does find that the participants who sort of started inwards to work outwards, you know, starting with their personal experience and then working that into the way that all of these large numbers work, um, were more accurate on their space and distance estimations when they learned about it in this hierarchical manner, really, as I said, starting with yourself and moving outwards, as opposed to starting by looking at these huge confusing numbers and working inwards and trying to find how everything fits. It really start helps to kind of place yourself within these astronomical numbers and work. So you used this kind of mental trick. And by the way, I love all these mental math tricks, but I'm sure our listeners are wondering like, okay, wait, why does this apply to the federal government and the budget? And you used this kind of toolkit of mental tricks and applied it to the federal budget. So can you just briefly walk us through when you did that exercise to try and help people understand the federal budget a little bit better, what did you find? What, 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 what were the results that you found kind of compelling that helped explain our budget a little bit better? Well, just to recap quickly how the rescaling works, basically any $100 million, and right now you might be thinking that's a lot of money, um, in the federal debt is rescaled down to a $3 spending of a hypothetical family of four who have a total revenue of $100,000 a year. Right. Um, so, so, so family kind of, of four, we make 100,000 bucks. And yep. so under that scale, 100 million equals $3. Yep. Got it. And so we bring it down to that. And I think what first of all, immediately stands out is that we hear that there's a deficit and we know it's rising and we know it's large, but it really helps to hear that if your hypothetical family revenue is $100,000, we actually exceed that by about $44,000. So, you know, we're actually exceeding it by almost 50%. And I think that's something that really stands out immediately as soon as you start to look at these numbers. So that was something that was on a high level, very significant to me immediately after doing the rescaling, um, aside from just the numbers that we see, um, it's just immediately you see how how far we go over the planned spending. Um, so our family makes $100,000, but it's like we're spending $144,000. Yes, exactly. That's not great. <laughs> it's not great. And it's why our, our debt is, is so high and why we have all of these online calculators showing us as those numbers just go higher and higher. Um, I think another thing that really stood out to me was um, it actually, don't know if it made it into the article, but a big policy debate right now going on is making uh, different types of education free. For example, funding community college, um, which would ultimately end up in the education section of the federal debt. Um, so this is equivalent to a $70 billion increase. So it sounds like something that really is worthy of this huge debate. And maybe it is depending on your politics, but this actually scaled down is equal to $1,677 out of your $100,000 hypothetical revenue. So yes, it's significant if because it is a political uh, question, should the federal government be funding this type of education um, or higher education, but it ultimately comes out to be about 1.5% of total spending. Um, so I think that's pretty interesting when we think about what the hot policy topics are right now, um, actually seeing how much 
they cost us. Well, that's one of the things that jumped out to me about this article. And you alluded to this a few minutes ago that it's really about deciding among trade-offs and making choices, which is really what government is all about too. It, it seems like one of the advantages of your approach and Professor Strogatz's approach is that it helps us all do a gut check in our political discourse. So you can make any number when you're writing a political ad or making some kind of a charge on Twitter, you can make any number with an illion after it sound pretty big. And you could say, Congresswoman Green wants to, you to spend $8 million on this boondoggle. And it's, it sounds bad, but it sounds like your method is a way of saying, well, wait a minute. If you rescale this is five bucks in your family budget for, for free school meals for poor kids. Is that a bigger deal than $388 in your family budget for former President Trump's border wall? And by making those kinds of comparisons, you can help people, you can take the illions out of it and you can help people see more clearly, well, these are the real choices we're talking about. And boy, five bucks for poor kids to eat seems like a totally different thing than 388 bucks. Do we really need that wall? Is that kind of what you're going for in, in, in setting up this, this kind of example? I think so. Yeah. So when you say, um, you know, that this congressman is asking you to spend $8 million, I think it again goes back to the way that we all seem to perceive things on such a personal or individual basis. So when you hear that they're asking you or they're asking us as citizens to spend $8 million, that sounds like so much, especially if you aren't a millionaire or a billionaire. Um, but you have to remember that we're, it's not your $8 million. It's not even your town's $8 million or even your state's. It's the entire country. It's much more complicated than just a simple uh, you give money trade off for this. Um, and I think that our article kind of is trying to help people understand that and bring that perspective back to the individual so that that doesn't get confused where you're having this really big number put in front of you, even though that's not really the number or the impact it would have on you. Um, so yeah, I think that that definitely fits. So one of the things that I want to point out to our listeners that I think that they, they've probably gotten pretty clear at this point is in the writing partnership between you and Professor Strogatz, you're younger, you're still a student, you're also obviously a very capable person. And one of the things that's stood out to me when I worked on Capitol Hill is that it's one of the workplace environments where young people who are relatively early in their careers, if you know the most in the room, you run the meeting. You have a real material ability to impact the direction of what's being done on policy, where a political argument is going. You have, you have some real influence relatively earlier in your career. Have you... I mean, as a, a younger, early career person, how has this experience kind of shaped your thinking? You're obviously in a political management program here. You're, you're looking to take your career in this direction. Has this made you think differently about the direction you'd like to take your career and the insights you've gleaned from this writing process? I think what I love about this article is that it's really a tool and I think it's a really amazing culmination for me personally to have of both my math class with Professor Strogatz in applied mathematics and math exploration, sort of creative uh, new ways of thinking about math, as well as my major, because as I said, this is a tool for people to use 
our article is not asking people to think one way or another. And I think that regardless of which side of the political spectrum you fall on, um, you can use this tool either way. Thank you for the article and for appearing on Beyond Politics. Thank you so much for having me, Matt. I really loved talking to you today.